right, greetings on this gorgeous, gorgeous day. What a gift this is to us. Special welcome to those of you who are new, visiting with us today, or relatively new. Uh, We're in a series on the book of Hosea, not often uh, uh, studied or read very much by us, but uh, we're taking a Try and take a careful look at it. So here's where we have been. In the first chapter, we talked a little bit about Hosea's difficult and tragic marriage, which was intended by God to be a picture of the relationship between the Lord himself and the nation. And actually what we find in this book is that After the first couple chapters, the marriage and family life of Hosea recedes almost totally into the background, and front and center is the Lord's relationship to Israel. And then the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the names of his three children, which are all symbolic, symbolic of the desperate religious situation of the nation. The firstborn, Jezreel, that's a place in northern uh, Israel, it's an area, it's also a particular town, and uh, it's a town with a history. Among other things, it's where God visited judgment on on the dynasty of Ahab, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, wicked because he, through his wife Jezebel, introduced Baal worship Uh, into the life of the nation. And uh, so wild man Jehu was the guy who visited judgment on Ahab's house, a big massacre. Uh, That's about 100 years before Hosea comes on the scene. And Hosea is the name his son Jezreel because that same judgment is now going to be visited on the dynasty of Jehu because they've gone back to their old ways. They're back to worshiping Baal. So Jezreel says, judgment is at hand. Second child, a girl, is called Lo-Ruhamah, which is, uh, Ruhamah is uh, compassion, pity, mercy. And uh, Lo is simply no. (laughs) No compassion, not anymore. Uh, Israel has had all the chances that God will give them for repentance and turning Uh, but now is the time for judgment. No more compassion. And then the third one is another son who is named Lo-Ami, not my people. Uh, That's a rejection of the covenant that was established back with Moses, where the Lord said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And now God is saying, it's all off, friends. Uh, You're not my people anymore Uh, the the covenant will no longer be the place of privilege. It'll be the relationship of judgment. All right, so that took us to the end of chapter 1. Today we want to look at chapter 2, which I just entitled Adultery, Judgment, and Grace. Not all that uh, clever, right? But but that's really what this chapter is talking about. And again, it's not primarily focused on Hosea, that's in the background, the Hosea-Gomer the Hosea relationship. 
But what comes front and center is God speaking in the first person and saying, this is what I'm going to do because this is what I've experienced from uh, Israel. Uh, this, uh, we, we talked about the, uh, the Jehu massacre as R-rated for violence. Uh, this is just about R-rated for uh, eroticism or sexuality. But, uh, but this is the word, and it's shocking to us, and it was shocking to the people that heard it. So we're going to split the chapter into two. Let's look at the first half of the chapter. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and she has conceived them in disgrace. Just a quick note of what's happening here. We've got the children and the wife distinguished, which probably is to think about the wife as official Israel, the nation the rulers, the kings, the priests, and so forth. And then the children are, if you will, the common people who have been led and taught by their mother, Israel. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. All right. Well, this first half chapter is pretty sober stuff, huh? The dominating imagery here is the imagery of adultery. It's not the only one because it gets intertwined with this image of desert and ecological devastation. Those two go together, and we'll talk about them. But the dominant one 
playing off of Hosea's lived out relationship in front of the people is this metaphor of idolatry. Adultery is what happens when an exclusive relationship of love is violated by a third party who doesn't belong there. Where love is either given or stolen by someone to whom it is not properly given. That's the metaphor that describes the reality of Israel's relationship to the Lord. A third party has come in, a third entity. What is the third entity? It's the idols of the Baals. Remember the calf worship that's going on in Israel, in Dan and in Bethel. The idols are the adulterer from the outside. Israel is the wife who has let her affections be stolen. And that then is woven all through this passage. So the issue here, in all of Hosea, the fundamental spiritual issue is idolatry seen as adultery, as spiritual adultery, and it's the old contest between Yahweh and Baal. That's not a new contest in Israel. Remember a century earlier in the days of Elijah when there's a famine for three years and at the end of it, Elijah, who's been in hiding, shows up to Ahab and says, uh, it's time for a showdown here. And they gather all the prophets of Baal and meet on Mount Carmel, which is right above the Jezreel Valley. And there the big contest is who actually can provide rain to a land that has been bone dry for three years. So that's 1 Kings 18. That's a century earlier. Here, because the house of Jehu has gone back to Baalism, we've got the same contest again. The same spiritual adultery is going on. The affection of God's people for Yahweh, his exclusive worship, you shall have no other gods before me. It's being violated all the time. There's this mixture of Yahweh and Baal together. Here's a, uh, you know, Baalism was common throughout all that area. Here's a, a, a picture of uh, uh, the remnants of an ancient temple to Baal in Syria today. Uh, and Syria is, you know, is Israel's neighbor just to the northeast. So this was all around. What Israel picked up here was from its neighbors. In fact, in Israel, under Ahab, when he married Jezebel, she was a foreign queen, and she brought the prophets of Baal with her, and uh, that's what really pushes this in Israel. So they're still at it. The contest between Yahweh and Baal. What's the attraction of Baal? Well, Baal is a fertility god. And fertility is incredibly important in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, because the Middle East sits 
right on the border of the Arabian Desert. And so if you don't get some moisture coming off the Mediterranean, you know, so <clears throat> imagine the map, right? Israel, desert over here, and to the west is the Mediterranean. If, if the moisture doesn't come off the Mediterranean, if, it, if the wind comes off the desert, it's just a blowtorch, and everything dries up. That's what happened for three years on Elijah's day. And on Mount Carmel, when he prays, he sees the cloud. Remember? at the, And where's the cloud? It's out over the Mediterranean. Moisture is coming. But Baal is the god who supposedly controlled the weather. He's the storm god. He's also the god of fertility. Uh, in the ancient world especially, you wanted to have children and lots of them. That was a way to kind of secure your future. That was social security in those days. And so, so fertility for your animals, but you know, for a woman, that's so important. And, and Baal is the god who provides fertility to the earth. He provides the grain and the grapes, and he provides children for families. So why wouldn't you want to do your best to make sure that happens? And here's a God who, if he wants to, the gods are pretty arbitrary in these polytheistic societies, but you try to do your best to keep Baal happy, right? Then, of course, you still worship Yahweh because you've got a history with Yahweh and you have all the yearly festivals, and so you mix them together. This is, this is called religious syncretism. There's nothing exclusive about it. You try, to, you try to bring as many of the gods in favorably toward your situation as you can. Yahweh and Baal. The problem is Yahweh doesn't like that. Yahweh believes in exclusive fidelity. Baal and the other gods, they, they're promiscuous. They don't worry about that. But Yahweh does. And that's what Israel does not understand. Now, as you know, I've been uh, reading a number of commentaries. Uh, this is one by Dwayne Garrett, to me, is the best I've been working with. He has some very thought-provoking comments just at this point. So let me read this. She, Israel, really believed that she was practicing sound principles of religion and that she was receiving the appropriate rewards. Fixation on the adultery metaphor and on erotic aspects of the fertility cult, because there were, I mean, part of the way they worshiped Baal was ritual prostitution, right? If God was, if Baal the God was going to guide fertility, then you could have sex as part of your worship, and they had ritual prostitution at these sites. But Garrett says, focus on that can prevent us from recognizing the sincere devotion and spiritual blindness that had seized the people. Perhaps this is because we too feel vindicated by the external trappings of success and take this to be the validation of our theology and practice. 
Could we go back to Hosea's time, we might be shocked to discover that the spiritual decadence of Hosea's day was no more severe than that of our own. Worse yet, we might find ourselves wondering why Hosea was so upset with his generation because we have more in common with them than with him. Understand what he's saying? He's raising the question whether the evangelical church today, he's a Baptist, whether the evangelical church is as thoroughly entwined in idolatry of various sorts as were the people in Hosea's day. That's the question. And I think we cannot read Hosea and listen to him faithfully unless we are open to that possibility that we are idolaters, that we are syncretists who, like these people, found it difficult to understand why the Lord had a complaint with them. I mean, they were still, they were still doing the assigned religious stuff. That's in those verses there. They were still observing the Sabbath day. They were still doing the three annual festivals. They were celebrating the new moon, recognizing this is all Old Testament stuff from Moses. They were still doing it. But to cover all their bases, they brought Baal in as well. You say, why would... Why would God use such a shocking situation in Hosea's life? And why would he talk this rough language? I'm going to strip you as bare as the day you were born. I'm going to expose. I mean, this is violent language, isn't it? And I suspect that the reason for it is that it was shocking not just to us, but to the people of his day. I can see them saying, what, what in the world? <laughs> I mean, what's, what's the problem here? And it's just this tough language followed by tough action, because remember, judgment is coming. The Assyrians are growing in their power off to the northeast, and they are going to destroy the nation. It's going to happen. And it's only that kind of forceful shot that is going to jar things loose and help these people to see their situation. Yeah, but how is it with us? You know, idolatry is fundamentally a heart issue, isn't it? When a husband or a wife gets involved with another party, it starts in the heart. It may have physical outworkings, but it starts in the heart. And so we, we can have idols that are not visible and material, too. I don't... <clears throat> I don't see any golden calves around much these days except some of the images from Wall Street. But there's lots of others. I mean, look at some of the things listed here. 
Career, family, money, fame, success, comfort, power, approval. An idol is whatever captures your heart as an an ultimate focus of your affection and steals affection away from your relationship with God. I mean, you can see how a career does that very easily, right? For, For some people, you can see them living for the career. Family. Family can be an idol because it can be the most important thing. Families, of course, are important. But it can become the thing that actually dominates over our affection and life with God. Idols of the heart. Are we as complicit and guilty as Israel? Well, adultery, anyway, is the, uh, the shot here. James, uh, the younger brother of Jesus, uh, sounds about as much like an Old Testament prophet as any of the apostles do. And uh, this sounds like he's just been meditating on Hosea, doesn't it? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That imagery of God's jealousy, that's right back to that adultery metaphor, isn't it? All right, so there's adultery, spiritual adultery, and God has pronounced judgment. Jezreel means judgment. It's coming. Uh, This chapter then talks about the nature of that. That judgment will involve exposure. And the literal picture is The stripping of his wife. Public exposure. uh, But the physical aspects are not what is primary here. What's, What's involved in this exposure? Well, certainly defenselessness. Uh, Once the once the Assyrians come, they are the most powerful empire of their day. They are the most brutal. Of all of history, they're among the most brutal. Uh, And before them, Israel will be defenseless. And that is what uh, is brought out here. She will be exiled. Estimates of uh, over 27,000 people exiled to other parts of the empire. That's the way the Assyrians dealt with conquered peoples, at least ones that resisted them, and then uh, shame. Shame is part of that, and here is where so often in these chapters the literal and the metaphorical mix together. So literally, Israel will be shamed because frequently exiled captives were forced to march naked. That was part of the humiliation that was intended to come on conquered peoples. They'd be shamed. But the shame is broader than that. It's the shame of trusting in gods that could not protect them. 
right? That's part of the shame. What you thought was your strength is, is worthless. So there's exposure as part of this judgment. But then there's also this theme of ecological devastation. I will make her a desert. So here's a, I don't know where this is from, but someplace after a storm, tornado. It looks, uh, except without having the charred part, it looks kind of like some of the western states now after the wildfires. You look at those places, you say, How, what kind of future is there? What can you do with that? Well, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen in Israel. That's what Hosea says. Uh, It'll be devastated because enemies will overrun it and they will destroy, uh, especially some of those things that, that an agricultural people depend on long term, the, the vines and the fig trees. And those, you can't, you can't just plant them and have them produce the next year, right? That takes time. So the olive trees, fruit trees, all that stuff is going to be devastated by the enemy and then... Because the land is going to be decimated, there will be so few people, they won't be able to care for the land, and so thorns and briars and wild animals will come in and devastate the vines and all those things that belong to settled civilization. So there's going to be ecological devastation that is uh, promised to them. The reason the ecology is brought in, remember again that, that Baal is a fertility god. So part of the judgment is to show that Baal cannot care for them in these fundamental areas of the fertility of the land. Here's the complaint, verse 8. She did not know that I gave her the corn and wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. They worship Baal, they give money to Baal, they form their lives around Baal to get the fertility and the blessings of the land, and Yahweh says, I gave them that. They don't understand She didn't know. Who is the true fertility God? It's Yahweh, right? The judgment is going to be such that it brings an end to Baalism. Uh, this exile, we don't know a lot about what happened to most of the exiles from Israel. We know that a century and a half later, when Judah was exiled, spent 70 years in uh, Babylon, we know that that ended official idolatry in Israel-Judah. We know it brought an end to it. Not that, not that later Jews were not idolaters, just as we're idolaters too, right? But that external idolatry, it's ended by God's uh, judgment here. The next section we're going to read in a minute has this interesting verse that 
You often don't pick up on, depending on the translations you have. It's verse 16. In that day, in the future, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. See, Baal has the meaning of Lord or Master. And apparently, because of the syncretism, they've been using Baal as a title, not just for the pagan fertility god, but also for Yahweh. And the Lord says, that's going to stop. There's a day coming when worship will be true and Israel's affection will be pure. She will call me my husband, no longer my Baal. There'll be a clear separation between the two. So let's look at the second uh, section here. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Now, this is, this is stunning. If you've been reading this ahead, right? Uh, this is what a philosopher would call a non sequitur, something that does not follow. Because if you've been going through all these verses before, all this doom and gloom, and you come to verse 14 and you read, therefore, what, what do you expect to find after that? Well, you expect some kind of a statement like, in view of all the stuff I've just said, therefore, there is no hope for these people. That's what you expect. But look what he actually says. Therefore, I am now going to allure her I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Akor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master, my Baal. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. The agricultural cycle will be restored. That's what he's saying. They will respond to Jezreel. I will plant them for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Now notice once again, the same thing that happened in chapter 1 happens again. The three names appear of the children. And they are all turned positive from negative. So Jezreel, which first means judgment that can't be delayed, now 
becomes part of the agricultural cycle that is restored. New wine, olive oil, they will respond to Jezreel, I will plant her for myself in the land. Jezreel means God plants. And the positive meaning of that name is what's now drawn out in a future day. In that day, which in the prophets means sometimes in the future, usually the distant future. What about the second child? Lo Ruhamah. I will show love to the one called not loved. Instead of Lo Ruhamah, her name now simply becomes Ruhamah. Mercy, compassion. And to the one called Lo Ami, it will simply be Ami, my people. Well, this is an extraordinary passage. I was tempted to take a whole message just on this, but what's this about? This is about grace, friends. Grace is the favor of God given to those who do not and cannot deserve it. That's grace. And grace is promised here to an adulterous nation It's what we've called the great reversal. We've seen it already in chapter 1. It's right back here again. And it, it is all through Hosea. Right to the last chapter. The great reversal, which is the return of shalom. It's the return of comprehensive well-being for the nation. When you read through the description of things there, the ecology is restored. The new wine is back. The, uh, the purity and intensity of Israel's initial religious devotion to Yahweh, it's back. They dwell in safety. That's, that's the theme of uh, peace. In verse 18, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lay down in safety. The return of Shalom. And then, of course, the other thing you see here is the relentless love of Yahweh for his people. The uh, picture that comes to mind here, not in Hosea, but the one that you can hardly miss is this... uh, image of the hound of heaven. I don't know how many of you have read that poem. It's worth reading at least once a year. It's fairly long. Uh, it's, it'll give you the fruit for ongoing meditation. It's just beautiful. Uh, Francis Thompson was a drug addict, homeless on the streets of London in the late 19th century. He was uh, befriended by some Christians, came to faith, and uh, wrote this extraordinary poem, The Hound of Heaven. The imagery is that of God chasing him for years and years and years as he constantly attempted to run away. So, 
Uh, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read uh, a few lines from it just to give you the feeling because it's very powerful and thoughtful. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears. From those strong feet that followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. God is following a procedure of slow, unhurried, but undeterred pursuit of Israel. And one day, in that day, the prophet says, one day that will be rewarded. One day, the prophets say, Israel as a nation will turn to its Messiah. Romans 9 to 11, if you want to read about that. But that same pursuit that God has with the nation of Israel, he has with us. Huh? And we ourselves, like Francis Thompson, know what it is that I fled him down the nights and down the years. Part of it, I think, is the intensity with which this God loves. That's part of it. We're not sure that we want to return love with that kind of intensity. <clears throat> We're distracted by other lovers, just like Gomer was, just like Israel was. But the love of God is relentless, pursuing <clears throat> it's the love which was so intense, so powerful, that it led him to Calvary. See, the cross is the measure of the intensity of God's love for you and for me. Is that amazing? And you're not sure if you want to respond to that kind of intensity. Maybe there's other people, maybe there's other things out there that are more attractive or at least need to be experienced so we know, right? To just give ourselves in love to this God exclusively? That frightens us. I think it frightened Israel. And so we, we tend, even in our best moments, to want to draw back or even to flee. But this God pursues. He pursues us all the way to the cross where he 
gives his life sacrificially. So Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might get for himself a bride. So, my friends, if you, like me, find yourself at times fleeing, I guess the word here is <laughs> stop running away. Turn toward the Lord. Repentance we've talked about many times. It means turning back, and we have to do that again and again. Turning back to the one who loves us with an everlasting love. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that the words of this book are shocking. Particularly shocking, Lord, that you might want to say these things to us or that we need to hear them. But Lord, our hearts are, are tempted to idolatry again and again. All sorts of false gods abound around us and we acknowledge that they draw our hearts. This morning, Lord, may we hear your invitation. May we see your son giving up his life for us. And may we respond with faith and love and fidelity and righteousness, and all the things that Hosea talks about there. May this be our day to move closer to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.